Hi, I'm Alona Minkowski and you're watching ABC News Live. Today we are mourning the death of Aretha Franklin, a musical legend, the queen of soul. She's passed away at 76 years old at her home in Detroit. That is going to be our top story today and we'll talk about her music and her legacy. But first, let's take a look at today's headlines. ISIS is now claiming responsibility for a suicide attack in the capital of Afghanistan this week that killed 34 people. Most of the victims were students getting ready for exams to go to college. Scary moments for airline passengers when the lights went out at Reagan National outside of D.C. An airport-wide power outage that started around 9.45 p.m. and lasted more than an hour, briefly forcing a ground stop last night, halting both inbound and outbound flights. Dominion Virginia Power is trying to figure out the cause. More than 70 people had to be taken to a hospital in New Haven, Connecticut, all suffering what police think was an overdose of the synthetic form of marijuana called K2. Federal regulators have now sent subpoenas to Tesla in an investigation over CEO Elon Musk's tweets that he wanted to take the company private. And New Zealand is now banning most foreigners from buying homes. Officials there say non-residents buying homes is driving prices out of the reach of most New Zealanders. Happy birthday to the Queen of Pop. Madonna is celebrating her 60th birthday in Morocco posting these photos to social media. Just a few days ago, we learned that Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, was gravely ill, that friends and family were rushing to be by her side, and now this morning the news has come in that she has passed away at 76 years old. ABC's Chris Connolly takes a look back at her life and her music. With God-given talent and artistry that conveyed emotion like no other. Lady Soul taught the world all it needed to know about respect. Aretha Franklin had the voice of a generation, her generation and your generation, both attuned to the day-to-day -day and soaringly transcendent. that um, what she did was allow emotional extravagance to be okay. With such songs as Think, Aretha electrified her listeners for decades, her church-bred greatness inspiring and empowering. First heard on record at 14 years of age in 1956, singing gospel. In her youth, Aretha would learn from such mentors as the great gospel singer Mahalia Jackson and Sam Cooke, who'd tell her, sing, girl. Her pop breakthrough came in early 1967 with I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You, setting off a series of monumental hits through 1968, among them Chain of Fools. And you make me feel like a natural woman. You make me feel like a natural woman. 
telling ABC News. I'm still got to find out who and what I really am. I don't know yet. I'm trying to find the answer. Intimately involved with the sound of her records, Aretha could shine a light at the saddest of times, as in 1968 at Martin Luther King's funeral. She'd return to the pop charts in the mid-80s with jumpsuit and the buoyant freeway of love, a joyful diva feeling the love once more. She'd earned so many honors, the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005, Ivy League honorary degrees, performing at President Obama's inauguration in 2009. Then in 2015, at the Kennedy Center Honors. slipping her mink to the floor and flat out owning You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Joining me this morning to speak more about the Queen of Soul and her life and her legacy is Mike Muse, a pop culture expert and a host at SiriusXM, and Josh Levy, former editor of, excuse me, Joe Levy, the former editor of Billboard magazine and a contributor to Rolling Stone. So I want to thank both of you for joining me. And Joe, why don't I start with you? Uh, just talk a little bit about Aretha Franklin and the impact that she has made over decades on music. Uh, decades is right. We're talking about someone who made her initial and greatest impact in the 60s, but also had absolutely crucial hits in the 70s followed by a revival in the 80s and her last top 40 hit in the 90s. That's astounding. Aretha was a monumental figure in the history of American popular music. We talk about her voice a lot because that voice was titanic. But we don't talk enough about her as a songwriter, as a piano player, as an arranger, as an architect of her own music, and as a social commentator, as someone who could take a song like Otis Redding's Respect and transform it into a civil rights anthem, into a feminist anthem, and who did this throughout her career over and over again. And Mike, speaking of that, her impact when it comes to civil rights, feminism, um, talk to us a little bit about the way that her music transcended into other areas and other spaces. Yeah, uh, Rita Franklin got her roots in the civil rights movement, and she got her roots from her father. Her father, her father was Reverend Franklin, who was in Detroit and was a really well-known preacher, uh, not just in the Detroit community, but in the religious circles across America. Her father was really part of the civil rights movement, and as we know, civil rights movement and the church go hand in hand together. The civil rights movement was empowered by the church, the black church. The civil rights movement, you know, it got its morale 
through church of song and from hymns uh, based in gospel tradition and gospel roots. And so by being uh, sitting under her father and sitting under her father's church and singing uh, for her father, that is what she was. She got introduced to. So it was really part of her constitution. And so as we see her performing at inaugurations and as we see her performing at the White House, that is something that was uniquely specific to who she was and to her nature. Something really powerful to note is how often she performed along Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King as he would go out and lead his rallies and lead his protests and lead his movements all the way up to Rita Franklin performing at his funeral. There was a moment where, you know, we all know I Have a Dream speech, the powerful rendition that was done on the March on Washington, but that was actually given in Detroit prior to uh, Dr. King delivering that speech uh, in Washington. And who was right there by their side? Aretha Franklin and her father. And so that was always been symbiotic. And so then as we move through the decades and we see that powerful song of respect that really kind of intersected as John spoke so eloquently on feminism and civil rights movement, we also see her, how she was able to transcend that even further by partnering with Elton John on the border song, right? And so Elton John is a strong advocate for LGBTQAI initiatives. But here she was able to do that and transform it and transcend it into civil rights and for equality. And so she just had this unique gift to transfer and move amongst all circles. And we see that through the presidents who adored her. We see that through her performing at President Clinton's inauguration and at President Obama's inauguration. But we also see that, too, with President Bush. President Bush is the one who gave her the Medal of Freedom Award. And so she transcended race, class, culture, identity, and politics. And you don't have too many artists out there today, and not even this artists, human beings out there today that have that gift that can transcend yeah. all those different demographics. She is, uh, she is a rarity and she was certainly one of a kind. We do have some images coming in too of the Hollywood Walk of Fame where Aretha Franklin has a star and there are already flowers being laid there. Keep in mind too, it is uh, very early in the morning in Los Angeles, but people are going there to pay their respects. And Joe, you know, I think it doesn't matter what age you are you know who Aretha Franklin is, right? And then that kind of speaks to it. You know that voice, you hear those songs and you recognize them. And so what is it, as we talked about her influence through the decades, uh, that has made her a voice that every generation recognizes? You know, it's several things. It's a powerful voice, it's a great voice. It's a once in a lifetime, maybe a once in all of planet Earth voice, but it's also great record-making, and she was a crucial and instrumental part of shaping those records, of shaping that sound. When I give you an Aretha Franklin title, like Respect or Think or Chain of Fools, you, you hear the vocal, but you hear the arrangement, the, the background singers, her, her sisters, uh, the sweet inspirations. You, know, you, you, you hear all the music. That music centered around her. It centered around her piano, her musical instincts, her own arrangements. She came to Atlantic Records in 1967. She came there from Columbia, where she had made middle-of-the-road pop that wasn't very successful. Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records brought her there, and his brilliant idea really was to let her be herself. Uh, it was when she f sat down at the piano at her first recording session that that song, I Never Love a Man, Loved a Man the Way That I Love You, began to come together. And after that, she was in control of her music, and she is the reason that we remember it. Not just the voice, but all of her musical instincts, all of her instincts about what songs to pick, what songs to write, how those songs signified 
not just as songs about a relationship, about love, about triumph of the spirit, but about how they signified in America. We heard a little bit of her singing My Country Tisby at, at Obama's inauguration. And what she brought to that song, a song that we all know, was unique. The pauses, the way that she made it swing, and that is not a song that swings. Uh, all of that is completely amazing, she completely was, uh, transformative. She was unapologetically Aretha, that's for sure. Joe, thank you for joining us today. And Mike, uh, just one more question to you here too. She was also very private in her life, despite being such a public persona, a public presence. What do we know about the struggles that she faced? Yeah, that was something Aretha Franklin was really known for, was her privacy. And she wanted to keep her public persona and her public, you know, gift of voice that she's always shared with the world, something to herself, in particular her illness and things that she may have been going with her family. She was always uniquely able to separate that. And that's something I think a lot of artists to this day are, are striving to find that intersection that social media becomes such more and more important to individual success and platform is how do you balance that private life from that public persona? And I think she did that really well. All right, Mike, thank you for joining us. We will be talking about Aretha Franklin all day long, but we do want to get to some other news that's happening today. And so first, let's go to ABC's Catherine Falders. She is in Virginia, where this could be the final day of the Paul Manafort trial, which means that the president's former campaign chairman could be going to jail for life. So Catherine, uh, talk to us a little bit about what happened yesterday because it was contentious uh, at the closing arguments between what the defense was saying, what the prosecution was saying, and what do we know about when we might be able to get a verdict? Yeah, so yesterday were the closing arguments. The government went first on this, and they painted Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman, as a liar, as a schemer. They said that it's really the paper that is all of the evidence here. Well, his defense, they countered that with calling Manafort a good guy saying he was a good businessman, a good political consultant, and that this isn't all of his fault. He did things in groups. He brought his accountant in, his bookkeeper in, the prosecution's star witness, Rick Gates, who the defense team is blaming all of this on. Now, you see behind me, we're on day 13 of this trial here. About a couple hours ago, the judge uh, dismissed the jury to begin their deliberations. They can begin once all of the evidence is in the room. But as you can see, all of these stakeout uh, cameras behind me were just waiting for a verdict here. But the big thing is that yesterday the judge actually joked with the jury that the room that they were going to be deliberating it, it's up in that courtroom on the ninth floor, a room off there. They said uh, it's a small room. Well, the jury this morning in court requested a bigger room. And just to put this in perspective, the amount of evidence, they are getting 388 exhibits from the government, but just one of those exhibits has a total of 700 pages alone. So they have to pour through mountains of evidence. Yesterday, the judge gave them jury instructions. He reminded the jurors, quote, the defendant in this case has an absolute right not to testify. And he told them to use their common sense. Wow. Well, your civic duty is certainly a job uh, when you're a juror on a trial on a trial like this. And speaking of all the cameras behind you, all the press that's been covering this, Trials a lot of the time are a waiting game, especially when there are no cameras, no computers, no cell phones allowed inside. So can you just break it down for us as to when this verdict does finally eventually come in? What has to happen for you to be able to get that information and then get it to us? 
Okay, I want to show you. So there's 18 counts that we're waiting on um, that the that the jury has to agree on unanimously. But how we get information out of that, as you mentioned, no cell phones, no cameras, no communication in there. It really comes down to that door right over there in that courthouse. We have folks in the courtroom scribbling down notes. They rip them off. They hand them to somebody who runs down all the way from the ninth floor down here, hands me the notes, and then, of course, we can get uh, the news out to the news division. So there's 18 counts that they have to go through here. And of course, when we find them um, guilty or not guilty, whatever that is, that information will come out. But look, it will take a little bit. And the jurors all have this verdict sheet, Alona. Um, it's four pages, the judge said, and they will have each of those 18 counts spelled out on their sheet and it has two boxes indicating guilty or not guilty. So whenever this verdict is delivered, of course, they'll go in that courtroom up there on the ninth floor and the information will literally come flowing out of that door. You'll probably see a stampede of reporters who will be coming over back to these cameras. All right, well, we know that you'll be waiting and then we'll be waiting for you to pass that information on to us as everybody awaits the verdict in the Paul Manafort trial. Uh, you know, just an important thing to remember here is that Russia, the Mueller investigation is not part of this probe, but it is obviously a question that is coming up because of Manafort's closeness to President Trump. So, Catherine, thanks for joining us today. And now let's move on to the White House. If the president was trying to silence his critics, then maybe that didn't work so much. Former CIA director John Brennan, after it was announced yesterday by Sarah Huckabee Sanders that his security clearance would be revoked, well, then he made the rounds on television. He has an op-ed out in the New York Times today pushing back against the president. And so let's go to the White House where Janae Norman is. And Janae, uh, like I said, some people feel that this is a sign that the president has been trying to silence his critics. The White House contends that, but what are the pieces that are falling into place? What are they telling us? Right. So we're also getting kind of a shifting explanation. When Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, first read the statement from President Trump regarding his decision to revoke John Brennan's security clearance, uh, the president cited erratic behavior. He said the former CIA director has a history of behavior that calls into question his credibility and objectivity. He said that Brennan has had uh, made unfounded and outrageous allegations and has had wild outbursts about the administration. Now, fast forward a couple of hours and that reasoning begins to evolve right so in the interview with the wall street journal the president then connects it to the russia investigation it's almost reminiscent of the james comey firing when we have one explanation one reason for it and then that starts to shift and before you know it the president ties it to the russia investigation james comey is actually listed as one of nine people who the white house say could also have their security clearances revoked. Also on that list includes the likes of Peter Strzok, Andrew McCabe, James Clapper, Sally Yates, Lisa Page. There are nine of them there, people who have either been critical of the president or found themselves in opposition of him. And some are calling, uh, some critics are wondering if this is kind of an enemy list, threatening to pull the security clearances of people who the president doesn't like. Uh, but so far, uh, as far as people who wonder if this is an attempt to silence critics, as far as John Brennan goes, it does not, it hasn't seemed to work, Alona. As you said, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times where he says that the president's claims of no collusion with Russia are hogwash, adding that he thinks that that's why President Trump revoked his security clearance, and he believes that the president is trying to silence uh, anyone who challenges him. Uh, all right, Janae, thank you for joining us today. Like we said, a lot going on there, and we'll keep following the daily drama that comes from the White House. And... 
Now, if you thought that you want to just have a happy and safe rest of your summer vacation, it's hard to do when you hear scary and terrifying news coming out like a shark attack that happened off of the beach in Cape Cod where a 61 year old man was waiting out just in the water. And so we want to go to TJ Holmes. He's there in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And TJ, thanks for joining us this morning. Tell us what happened. Uh, well, a guy was uh, doing what folks do this time of year, right? He's just kind of out waiting in the water. He wasn't that far out in shore. Now, this isn't the exact beach, but it was here in Cape Cod. Um, guy was about 30, 30 yards out from the shore, so not that far, and he feels a little something on his leg, and sure enough, uh, they have confirmed it was a shark that took a bite out of this guy, 61-year-old guy by the name of William Light. He's from upstate New York. They have identified him. He's in serious condition at the hospital, but he's had an injury to his hip uh, and also to his torso. So it sounded like it got a pretty good uh, a pretty good bite out of him. We don't know how big the shark uh, was and hasn't been identified, uh, if you will, but still uh, around this time of year. They, they're used to it here, actually, uh, at, at Cape Cod. They know every summer the, the vacationers show up here at the same time the sharks show up here. So, so humans and sharks actually vacation in the same spot, so it's only a matter of time <laughs> before something like this is going to happen. Unlucky for the humans that we happen to vacation in the same place. I was in Cape Cod last summer, and now I'm starting to question my decisions. Uh, also, from what I was seeing, there were seals around, right, where this man was waiting in the water. So could it have been a mistaken identity situation? Well, that's always, um, always the fear. They, they warn you here about don't swim in large groups. They tell human, human beings not to do that, but they also tell uh, you not to swim close to these seals. The sharks have been coming back to this area by maybe around the past decade, and the reason they are is because the seal population has grown. Uh, seals were kind of endangered for a while, and over the past several decades, they've actually put measures in place to increase the seal population. Well, the sharks got that memo. And now the seal population has been increasing and increasing, so the sharks have been coming and coming and coming here during the summer because it's a buffet laid out for them. So you have more sharks interacting with more people, of course. More of us are spending more time in the water and water sports and want to be on beaches, so you got more sharks and more people and more seals. It is not a good combination, quite frankly, even though we haven't seen an interaction, a shark encounter uh, over the past really six years here in Cape Cod that resulted in an injury. So it's been a while. But we need to be reminded every once in a while that they are still here. We hate that this guy, William Lighton, has to be the example to remind us. But uh, it sounds like he is going to be okay. Of course, and we hope that he does come out of this okay. And it's an important reminder that you need to be alert when you are vacationing in the summer. TJ, thank you so much for joining us. You got it. And of course, we leave you today with more of our top story. That is the passing of Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who passed away at 76 years old. So we will leave you here with a video of Aretha Franklin singing at the Kennedy Center Honors. So